I thought it would be interesting because we are actually learning Parshish Noach. And I had spoken about that over time, but just to go over and really talk about uh, uh, the, the whole concept, really, of a messianic light. You know, what really all is that? Uh, and so on, you know. And from Pashas Nerach, you really begin to understand what is happening. Uh, the, the place to start is this, is that what the Rabbanu has done simply is to conceal reality. He allows a certain amount of reality to be seen or perceived, and the rest of it, most of it actually, is concealed. And ultimately speaking, he wants to reveal all of this reality. But, that's, but, but the real idea is not even this. The real idea is that even after the messianic light, and most people don't see this, even after the messianic light, which is really the revelation of all reality, Oh, actually, before I forget, I want to dedicate the shear to Rini Moko, uh, Regina Bas, Yosef Ruvain. Yeah, that should go for the alias Neshama of this person. In any case, what the Russian really wants to do ultimately is something else. First, he wants to reveal the reality that he conceals. So you can almost say that 2% of what is out there is revealed, and 98% is concealed to be ultimately be revealed by the Mashiach. And that's really what the Messianic era is. It is a time when all that which has been concealed, hidden, now becomes obvious and revealed. So that happens in the Messianic era. But that's not really the end of the story. Because what the Russian now wants to do, after, after the Messianic era is over, is to change reality. See, this is the interesting thing. Where the reality in the future world, which is called Olam Habo, is not just a further revelation. It is a change. to something else that happens. Now, we don't really know what that is. <clears throat> and that is why the Gemara says, I know so the eye has never beheld what the messianic era is. And the reason for that is because it doesn't in any way resemble our reality. And by our reality, I mean even the messianic light, even the reality of the Mashiach. Now, the reality of the Mashiach is far beyond what we can imagine. It's just absolutely awesome. You know, <clears throat> maybe the best way to compare it is imagine an infant before it's born. I mean, what does it know about the world? What, what does it know about the reality of what's out there? Almost nothing. In fact, its understanding of reality is a complete distortion. And then when it all of a sudden comes out, Right, and all of a sudden it sees something which it could never comprehend when it was before it was born. So that is comparable 
to the reality of the Mashiach is that we are really like unborn children, you see. And all we see is from within, which is incredibly, uh, what he called, limited. And then all of a sudden, the Messianic era exposes a universe, a reality, which is so different that we cannot even begin to imagine it, you see. But what is interesting is this, is that even when you're outside, when an infant, a fetus, whatever you want to call it, an infant is born, it only has the mind of what? Of a five-day-old infant. So it's true that it looks around, and obviously it's trying to figure out what in the world is going on, right? But the reality of an infinite is infinitely less than the reality of an adult. And they're both looking at the same world. So you could compare that and say that the reality of us is, is this, as if we are really in the, in the universe. It's yeah. nothing, you see. And then when the Mashiach comes, there's a different reality, which is absolutely stunning. <clears throat> but that reality is the reality, or our perception of it, as an infinite, let's say, which is five days old. So it's true, it's a a whole different dimension of looking and seeing, but when you think about it, it's incredibly immature. And then there's Olam Habo, which is the reality of an adult, you see. So when you think about it, these are the three stages, you see. There's the reality of Olam Hazer, which is concealed. Then there's the reality of your Messianic era, which is revealed when the Mashiach comes. But that's not even the reality that the Revolution wants to show us. He wants to show us a reality which we cannot even imagine. Not because it's a quantitative difference, because it's a qualitative difference. There are things that exist in that reality which do not exist at all now. So therefore, we really cannot imagine that. So we're looking at three different stages of growth, you see. And that is really the way to understand uh, these ideas. Therefore, we understand now that the Messianic light, which is called the Or Mashiach, Messianic light, or Or Hagonus, the concealed light, right? Or the Or Rishon, or the first light, which was apparent in the first days of creation. All of this refers to the second stage, which is the messianic light, all of it, you see. But <clears throat> what will be in the future, in terms of Olam Habo, nobody knows. Nobody has ever had even an ink, inkling of what will be. <clears throat> so this is a very interesting contrast to understand the different stages. Now, even the reality of which we're looking forward to, which is called the messianic light, right? That will happen, obviously, when the Mashiach comes. And if we ask ourselves, what is that reality? Well, that reality is this. In fact, it's in the first postic, which I think I mentioned a long time ago. It says, and there was morning, 
Vayi'erev, and it was evening and morning, Yemechod, one day. Now we know all the other days it says, second day, third day, right? And those are called ordinal numbers, because they, they declare order. But Yemechod, one day, is a, it's called a cardinal number. So the question is, why does the Torah refer to the first day as Yemechod, one day? And Rashi attempts to answer that question. And he answers it by saying that on that day, Yom Echod, it was the day of one. Yom Shel Echod, the day of one. Because on that day, there were no conscious beings at all. Because the angels, which are the intermediaries, they were created on the second day. If on the first day of creation, there was no sentient, there was no conscious being other than the Rabbanu uh, but if you think about it, you can understand Yom Echot in a different way. What is that way? That Yom Echot, that means on that day, if you looked at the world, you could see how everything is connected to God. In other words, even though there are obviously trillions and trillions of different things that the Rebbe made, you know, this world, galaxies and so on, but in in some way, you saw that they all emanated from God. So that was called Yom Echod, the day of the one. And that light of the Yom Echod, or the ability to perceive the world, all of it, as all one because they all emerge <coughs> or emanate from God, that is the messianic light, you see. But... The reality of Olam Habo is much greater than that because that is a reality that you perceive in terms of all things, you see. But the reality, and you see how they're all connected and they all emanate from God. And therefore, even though there are many things, you realize that there's really one thing that unites everything. But in Olam Habo, the reality is different. That reality is where you not only see or perceive, but you actually experience God in a way which we cannot comprehend. And the reality of experiencing God is completely different than the reality of knowing God. It's a whole different reality. And that is the, the basics of Ulam Habo, you see. In any case, but at least the reality of seeing that everything is connected as one, okay, uh, is the messianic light. So that's what Yom Echod really is. Now, <clears throat> what God wanted <clears throat> is mankind in the ten generations, you see, that he wanted them to rectify creation by observing the seven Noachide laws. He wanted them to rectify creation. And as a result of that, right, in ten generations, they would experience this Yom Echod. They would experience this messianic light. So ten generations from Odom bring this to Noach. Now, they failed, but it's much more than that they, much more than that they failed. They had absorbed the opposite lesson. You see, 
and that is that each one felt that he was an independent reality besides God, and therefore they did whatever they did. So what they did is not only did they not misakin or metakin to rectify creation, what they did is they makalkil, they destroyed creation. <clears throat> because as I said last week, that God gave the power of Timsum that you could increase the restriction of God's presence. You can increase that. That means increasing the, the Timsum. Or you could diminish it. You could undo the Timsum. And all mankind had that ability, you see. It was only later that it was given only to Avram Avino. So therefore, what happened was, by the time the generation of Noach arrived, they had severely diminished the presence of God. In fact, it was so severely diminished that God decided to destroy the world. See, because the, the problem was, or I should say the situation was, is where God gave mankind total control. It means he left it up to mankind totally how much presence or absence he wants to be in creation. And that was the problem. Since they had total control, right, there was no limit. Therefore, if they want, they can completely cloud the reality without God, which is exactly what they did. So if you want to look at it, they created an environment called the Memteshaitama, the 49 levels of, of uh, pollution or whatever, you see. And therefore God decided to destroy the world. And we see in Pashas Noyach that God said that I will no longer destroy the world because what he really said is I'm going to limit uh, the ability of mankind or even the Jewish people from throwing me out of the Bria. I'm going to limit their ability or their access to or their control of Tzimtzum. And that's what he did, you see. And that guarantees uh, that the world will not be destroyed because we no longer have 100% control, 100% of the status of the Shekhinah. We don't have that anymore. And that guarantees that the world will not be destroyed. And that's what he did when God swore that he would never do this again, you see. Uh, so that's the guarantee. But the main idea is that because the creation or the people of mankind sinned terribly, uh, so therefore the judgment was that mankind would be destroyed. But what would destroy mankind? What would destroy mankind is the exact opposite of what they should have gotten. Since they should have gotten the Orishan, the Messianic light, because they would have done a tikkun in ten generations to all the light of the ten spheres, you see, and that would have that would have uh, allowed the light of the spheres to pervade the entire universe. So, therefore, what God did, as uh, He said, since you denied the entry of the Orishan, then that Orishan will enter, but in a different form in its physical analog form, which is water. So therefore what happened is that water destroyed them. Because water is the analog of the Orishan. Water, water is a universal material, and the Orishan really is the universal understanding of all reality. 
Uh, so therefore the heavens poured forth, right, water, and also from the great abyss. So the waters came from two directions. The waters came from the sky, if you want to look at it that way, right? And the waters also came from the earth, you see. <clears throat> and therefore it destroyed the earth. Now, why, is it, why does the waters come from two directions? Because the idea is that the Orishan really is really two directions, which we will see. Okay. And that is that, what is the Orishan? It combines or unites or unifies all Chochmah, all knowledge. And it combines it or unites it, connects it with the spiritual knowledge and makes it as one. You know, in other words, when you see this, you understand that everything emanates from spirituality. But before you do that, you have to understand the entire uh, structure of the physical universe. And then you see how that combines with the spiritual universe. So the waters from below is the physical universe. In the future, that's what's going to happen. That the knowledge of the physical universe will be exceedingly great. And therefore, <clears throat> that can, since now that is not known, that could be combined with the spiritual information or knowledge, and that is represented by the waters from above. So the Orishan is really two things in that sense. It is a unification or merger between information of the world itself, which is the physical universe, and that is combined with the information of the spiritual universe, and that's what we see as Echot, as one. We actually see how they all unite, you see. So that's really what the waters of the, the Noach was. <clears throat> and obviously what happened was, is because of the acts of mankind, then that this ore went into what's called in, in Kabbalah literature, into the Klippo. In other words, it was taken over by the Sultan. He could now conceal this tremendous ore, you see, and, and that concealment would deny mankind the ability of really, when you think about it, of Chochmah. That's right. They would be denied wisdom uh, because it is now concealed. So it is now the job after another 10 generations. It got worse. Okay. But like I said, the ability of mankind to access the Orishan or to access Tzimtzum is now tremendously limited. So mankind can bring 90% of tumor, of contamination or pollution or darkness into the world, but they cannot affect 10%. And because of that, God will not destroy the world. But that went into what's called the Klippah. It was surrounded by a tremendous spiritual force that would deny mankind the tremendous information or knowledge of spirituality. Now, when the Jews finally took over, as I will talk about not now but later, you see, and they went to Egypt, they were able to take out the Orishan from what's called the Klippa. They were able to take out this unbelievable clarity 
of information and knowledge, you see, of the total reality, they were able to take it out. And that's what Matan Torah really was. Now you see that, which is interesting. There's a very interesting allusion to this, to Remez, where it says, Vayikach Moshe, and Moshe took as Atzmois Yosef, the bones of Yosef. He looked for it, you see. Now, Yosef represents, obviously, the forerunner, or the root of Mashiach ben Yosef. And his main idea is the title that he bore in Egypt, Sofnes Paneach, Revealer of Secrets, you see. <clears throat> so, the concept of Orishan, of Messianic light, it ultimately is revealed by the Mashiach ben Yosef. So, Moshe Rabbeinu is showing that this knowledge, this unbelievable height of spiritual information was now released and it could be given to the Jews. That's what they accomplished in the exodus from Egypt. And that's why it says, and Moshe took the bones of Yosef. So you could read, it's Atzmois Yosef, the bones of Yosef. But you can also read it because the Sefer Torah does not have punctuation, the Nekudis and so on. You can also read it as Vayikach Moshe and Moshe took as Atzmus, Atzmut Yosef, the essence of Yosef, you see. And that's really what he took out of Egypt. You can call them the sparks of holiness, Nitzotzei Kedusha, you see. But they all mean the same idea. And that, of course, since that information or knowledge was now out of the hands of the Sultan, out of the Tumah, that could now be revealed to the Jewish people, which it was. And that's Matan Torah. <clears throat> the Torah that was revealed to the Jews is not the same Torah that we have, you see. The Torah that was revealed to the Jews was the Om Mashiach. The problem is, as I once said, that they had to earn it again. You see, so they were given a test of the the ego, the golden calf. But really, what Moshe brought down, the first tablets, is the Orishan. You see, and there are many things which allude to that. That when you looked at the tablets, you could read it from one side. You could read both sides, only looking at one, because there was no blockage at all of the information, the Torah, that was on the Luchas Rishonis. You see? Because that's really what the Orishan is. It's a complete understanding of the information without any barrier, you see? And it's instant information with a tremendous ease, no difficulty in understanding it. <clears throat> and that was the Luchas Rishonis. Because that's really what they should have gotten when they left Egypt, you see. The problem was, however, you know, is that they did the golden calf, which automatically meant that this type of Torah or knowledge of reality, the messianic light, would go back into the people. And that's why we know, <clears throat> that's why they built an eagle, you see. And an eagle, an ox, is the symbol of Yosef. 
So by building the golden calf, that meant, and worshipping it, that meant that the Orishan, the Messianic light, which is the light, light of the Mashiach ben Yosef, the similar Mashiach ben Yosef, is obviously an ox. And therefore the idol that they made was an ox, a calf, a golden calf. And that went back into what's called the Klippah. That's why they made an ox, you see. Because <clears throat> it indicated that the Orishan, the Messianic light, which they got, now went back into the darkness. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu knew this because the Rabbanu said to him, go down, you see, because they have corrupted themselves, the Jewish people. So Moshe Rabbeinu knew this, but he had a tremendous quandary problem because what he really knew he really should do is give it back to God. Because if the Jews don't deserve the first tablets, the Luchas Rishonis, then what you do is give it back to God, obviously, you see. But Moshe Rabbeinu knew, he knew this, that God is not even asking for it. Because the Bershom doesn't really want it back. He wants the Jews to have it. But the problem is that Moshe Rabbeinu knew that even if God doesn't want it back, I can't give it to the Jewish people. Because the level of spirituality that these tablets will bring to the, anybody who learns them, who sees them, will destroy him. Because that's what happens. If a person is exposed to a level of Kedusha, holiness, much greater than he is, that he can die. Because his physical body cannot contain that type of holiness. So Moshe Rabbeinu had a tremendous problem. He knows God doesn't want it back because he never asked for it back, you see. So what does Moshe Rabbeinu do? So he decided to destroy it, the tablets. So he threw it at the bottom of the mountain. Why? Because it would mean they would gather up the pieces, and the Gemara says that the pieces of the tablet are in the uh, Menachem Be'oran. They are in the Oran itself, you see. And therefore, you really cannot learn the tablets because it's broken into a thousand pieces, you see. So in one way, you can't learn it, you can't read it because it is completely shattered. But since the pieces are on earth, right, they are in the Oran, therefore the Jews can absorb the aura, the ruchnias, of those tablets. So that's a perfect compromise. They can't learn it and therefore be destroyed, but they can experience some aspect of that ore because it is among men, Jews, and they never went back to God. So Moshe Rabbeinu brilliantly solved the problem. Uh, but that's a very important idea, you see. What did they do? They took all the pieces of the Luchas Rishonis and they put it in the Oran, you see. And then, of course, we know God gave them the second tablets that also went into the Oran. But if you think about it, <clears throat> the, how, did, how, did, uh, how is the Oran disguised in the Oran? That is the question. Well, 
the actual disguise of the Luchas Rishonis and Yarn is exactly correlates to the physical position of these uh, broken pieces. If you look at it, all these pieces, they are disordered. They're not in a cohesive manner. They're completely disordered. It's a jumble, you see. It's like having a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, right, without a box. So it's one massive uh, pile of pieces. So you really can't learn much about that. So what prevents a person from studying this ore or the Luchas Rishonis, right, is the fact that it's a jigsaw puzzle. It's completely disorganized and disordered, you see. And that's the way they are concealed in order to protect the Jews. What is therefore very interesting is that that's exactly the form that Torah is in now. If you think about it, Torah is in many ways it's a jigsaw puzzle. You know, I mean, if you learn it analytically, you can see different pieces of it, but really it's disorganized because the Torah we have today is in the Klippa, besides the Messianic light. The Torah itself is in the Klippa, which means that it is disorganized, shattered to thousands of pieces, you see. And our job is to, in some way, reorder or figure out what the big picture is, you see, which is very interesting. So we now understand how it's concealed by being in the form of a completely disorganized pile of pieces. That is how the messianic light is concealed, you see. Now, when will this be taken out? When will it be revealed? So what is interesting is that there's a Zohar, and the Zohar says the following. Well, actually, it says by Noach, because it says in the 600th year of the life of Noach, right? That's when the rains began. So the Zohar learns that just like in the 600th year of the life of Noach, that's when the flood began. Therefore, in the 600th year of the fifth millennium, right, that also will happen. The waters will again return. But this time, it will come down as chokhmah, as unbelievable wisdom and knowledge. So what the Zoya is saying is that the waters of Noach will again be restored, but not as a flood of water, but as a flood of knowledge, of information. And that will begin in the 600th year of the 5th millennium. Now, what year does that correspond to? It corresponds to 1840, you see. Because 1840 is the year of 5,600. And that is the 600th year of the fifth millennium, you see. And therefore, the Zoya says, like I said, that the waters of Noach will return on that time. And there's a Koshnitz Magid. That's a very important idea. 
that if the Jews are Zoycha, if the Jews merit it <clears throat> because of the mitzvahs of the Jews, then we will get that or we will get the the uh, light, the knowledge of that messianic light. However, if the Jews do not merit it because they have sinned, then the Goyim will get it. And that's exactly what happened. The Goyim got it, not the Jews. How? Well, if you remember history, 1840 is really the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. In other words, mankind went away from an agricultural society and became a society of industry, factories, technology, and so on. You had many great scientists who lived then, you see. You had uh, Michael Faraday and uh, James Clerk Maxwell. I mean, a tremendous amount of discoveries were made in that year of 18... Of, uh, at that time, I should say. So that's the Chochmah that came. And that really is the beginning of the technological age, you see. What happened with the Jews? Basically, nothing. Although there was an interesting, uh, you know, uh, idea. And that is, there was a person who lived that did in many ways, that did in many ways introduce that type of thinking that type of analysis to restructure, to analyze, and that was Abchaim Briska. That's really what the Briska Derech is. It is a parallel to the Chochmah of the Goyim. So they got science, they got the scientific method in which they are able to analyze physical universe with an entirely different approach than before. And what we got is also uh, a method of analysis that was introduced by Rab Chaim Briska, became known as the Briska Derach, you see. And therefore, you know, that became very popular because it had tremendous Shaita Dishmaya, tremendous divine assistance, you see. And therefore, that's what we got, which obviously is not even a comparison in terms of the amount that was given. I mean, you look at the, the scientific revolution. Um, <clears throat> You see, uh, if you think about it, you know, the entire world's knowledge advanced in a very slow way for thousands of years. And finally, after a certain time, it wasn't an arithmetic progression, it became what's called the geometric progression, where knowledge began to increase with substantial speed. Then after a while, it's no longer geometric. It's called exponential. And that's what's happening today. The information that you are seeing in the world is exponential. You can't even believe what's happening. The amount of information out there now is beyond belief. I think it's said that the, the last time that anybody could know all human knowledge, I think was in the 12th century. Today, you're lucky if you know information, knowledge, about a specialty of a specialty of a specialty. That's how much information there is out there. In fact, it was written that the growth of knowledge today, in the, in the world today, right, is of such a magnitude that every day 7,500 journal articles appear. 
you imagine every day all over the world, 7,500 articles appear. At that rate, human knowledge will double every five years. It's awesome. Could you imagine all the information in the Library of Congress? What does it have, like 50, 80 million volumes and all that? Could you imagine that doubling every five years? It's awesome. You see, why? What is this? This is the Orishan. The problem is, like the Koshnitz Magid says, it's coming down to the Goyim, not to the Jews, you see. And therefore, their knowledge is growing exponentially. I mean, a scientist himself cannot believe the rate of information that is happening. <clears throat> you know, if you think about it, there's not much of a difference between somebody who lives in, 18, in, <clears throat> in 1840, right, or 1840 BCE. Not, there's not really a difference. Maybe the clothing was different and so on. But the difference between somebody who lives in 1840 now and 2021, you can't even believe the difference. How is that possible that mankind, you know, developed a quantum leap in understanding about the physical universe? And the answer to that is that this is the origin, you see. But it's coming to the Goyim. And like I said before, the first phase of the Orishan coming down comes to the physical universe. It comes as the physical sciences. Why? Because ultimately, that has to be combined with the spiritual knowledge or science, you see? And then together they connect, and that is the real Orishan. Therefore, the first phase of the messianic light that comes down is really in science. It's in secular information, you see. <clears throat> Later on, when the Orish begins to come to the Jews, finally, then that information, this, the spiritual information, the Torah, will grow to such an extent that, again, we cannot even imagine it. And that will be stage two, you see. So that's what's happening. If you think about it, nine out of ten scientists who ever lived, lives today. Because almost all of science is happening today. That is the Orishan, which is a, when you think about it, it's absolutely awesome. And that is the first stage, you see. And that's really what happened in the marble where the earth, the waters came out from the earth to Hoim Rabo and Arubasa Shemayim and the winds of, windows of heaven, you see. And then they combine to make one flood. So that's the same idea with the Orishim. You take all the knowledge of the earth and you combine that with all the knowledge of the spiritual universes and it becomes one unbelievable knowledge, you see. So when you think about that, that's really what's happening. And that is alluded to in the Pasha of Noach, that in the 600th year, in the life of Noach, that flood will return. But it will return not as water. It will return as unbelievable ore. 
which is the messianic light. And we see that that, that is actually true, which is really very, very important. <clears throat> but there's another Zoya, which is interesting, which says that the old Mashiach will begin to descend, begin to descend, will come down much heavier in, like I say, in the 600th year of the 5th millennium. But it really will begin to descend in the year 1240. Why? Because there are six days to creation. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, right? And Friday is Erev Shabbos. You see? And right before Shabbos is the Messianic light. Is the Messianic era. You see? So therefore, we know that there are 6,000 years. Each thousand years corresponds to one day. So if there are six days, and the six days are of Shabbos, so that will mean that Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is 5,000 years. So therefore, at 6 p.m. on Thursday night is the beginning of the sixth day, which according to the creation calendar is the beginning of the, um, the last millennium, which is the year 5,000. And therefore, since Erev Shabbos is then, so that is the beginning of the preparation of Shabbos. So in world history, it becomes the beginning of the preparation of the Old Mashiach. In fact, if you look at the year 1240, was there an indication that the world would now begin to see tremendous Chochmah? And the answer is yes. Because there was a person who named Roger Bacon. And Roger Bacon is the one who innovated and taught the scientific method, you see, because they got away from Aristotle, who just used to think. And he actually began to devise the concept of experiments and so on. So the beginning of science, if you really want to think about it, starts with Roger Bacon, because he developed the scientific method, you see. So therefore we see that there's a tremendous advancement in the Chochmah of the Goyim, the secular. But the same thing happened with the Jews. What was that? That also, right, in the, thir- in the, in the uh, end of the, the, uh, 13th, the uh, 13th century, which is around 1290, the Zoya was discovered, you see. And the Zoya really is the spiritual information, the Kabbalah is the spiritual information of the Orishan. So it's amazing when you think about that, that science begins then, and the spiritual information, which is the Orishan, also begins then, because that's Kabbalah, and they both begin to grow, you see, which is fascinating. What is interesting, you know, is the fact that mankind would remain in darkness, that even they, in order to advance in physical information, needed the Orishan, which began to come down in the English year 1240, which is the Hebrew year 5000, you see. And that's what happened. Like I say, Roger Bacon innovated the scientific method. That's, that's the secular information, right? That's the Orishan in the form of secular information, you see. And uh, the Zoya, which is the Kabbalah, of course, that began also in the 13th century. You see, in any case, that's how it begins. And they both begin to advance. 
the secular information, and also the Kabbalistic information, you see. And finally, you begin to get, come near dawn. Now, dawn is basically 1740, you see. And 1740, right, uh, is the uh, English year, uh, 1740, the Hebrew year 5,500. And that's equivalent to Friday morning, basically, of Netzachama. So therefore, that itself indicates or provides a tremendous push to increase the descent of the origin. How? Because right at the t- that time, right shortly before 1740, you had the, one probably considered one of the greatest scientists who ever lived, Sir Isaac Newton, you see. So he therefore advanced science to a tremendous degree. And we, of course, at that time, that's when the switch has to be made. And unfortunately, it really wasn't, as the Koshinitz uh, Margaret pointed out. And I believe the primary reason why it went to the Goyim and not to the Jews is because of the same concept as Chamelniki Massacre, who destroyed more than one-third of Europe because of Russian horror. In fact, um, the Tosis Yontif even says that the reason for the Chamelniki Massacre that destroyed one-third of Europe is because everybody talks in shul. And of course, we know what they talk. It's all Russian horror. <clears throat> so that, in many ways, is what uh, transferred the Orishan coming down, because it has to come down at that time. It transferred it to the Goyim and not to the Jews. And tragically, we are still without that uh, because of, uh, basically, because of the tremendous amount of sinaschinam, baseless hatred, and also Russian um, horror, you see. In any case, it is growing, but it's growing with the good, you see. Because from the time of Newton until now, we cannot even begin to understand the amount of chokhmah that they have acquired. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of journals which promote the big, which promotes the frontier of knowledge. Can you imagine having that much information, like I said, on a daily basis? It's incredible. It would take you a lifetime just to go through a medical library, just to learn medicine. It would take you a lifetime. You see, that's how many books and journals there are just in medicine. And there are hundreds and hundreds of different fields, each one having their books and their journal articles, right, that, that is uh, disclosing, uh, you know, basic uh, uh, advanced information, the frontiers of knowledge. So when you think about that, it's incredible to see the descent of the Orushim. Hopefully what will happen, of course, is finally it's going to switch over to the Jews. And therefore, there will be an unbelievable descent to the Jewish people, you see. But what's interesting is this, is that this was all incremental. Even though God gave this knowledge to the Goyim, it can only be in an incremental way, because he does not want to destroy them. You see, you cannot expose this type of information, you know, 
in one year to people. They could never handle it. They would die from fright. So what God did is he spread out. Once he decided to give it to the Goyim, he spread it out over many years, actually over many centuries, so they can slowly acclimate themselves to this type of information. What's interesting is the same thing with the Jews, that once God finally does decide, he will give this knowledge to the Jews. But I believe it will be much quicker than what he did with the Goyim. Because we've already been exposed to tremendous uh, internal understandings of the physical world. We already were familiar with this, so we wouldn't be as frightened if we saw it in the, uh, in the Torah itself. So I believe that will go much quicker than what he did to the Goyim, you see. Because they came basically out of nowhere. But the Jews have already been uh, exposed to science and technology and so on. So therefore, even though it comes down as tremendous oration, messianic light, it can be uh, absorbed much quicker than what happened to the Goyim. In any case... <clears throat> So this is very important because it gives us the history of the Orishim. And it indicates to us what is happening and what eventually will happen, you see. So it's interesting that that which happened thousands of years ago, the Mabo, is a completely different story than most people understand. It's not just a story, you know, where all of a sudden the earth has flooded. No, it's much more profound. It's a story of how what they should have had in those days, an exposure to the incredible amount of reality that there is, was thwarted and delayed. But like the Zoya says, it will come back. The problem is there's obviously a delay. The 600th year of the life of Noach will come down. So the Zoya said, in the 600th year of the fifth millennium, it will also come down. Unfortunately, it descended to the Goyim. But that's only for a certain amount of time. There has to be a switchover. All of a sudden, something will happen, supernatural, where the Jews will begin to access their terror in a way that they could not believe and that will be the beginning of the Orishim, you see, to the Jewish people. And I believe that they will see this and know this before the Mashiach comes, which I have spoken many times, the whole concept of rehabilitation. But it will happen, and it will happen hopefully very soon. Any questions? Rabbi, I have a question. Aidy Mastery, how are you? How you doing, Abe? I'm doing real good, thank God. And Great. So my question is, you're talking about the Mayim, which is knowledge, right? Yes, it's so, a metaphor for knowledge. It's a metaphor for knowledge. So, on the second day, God separates the, the, the Mayim, right? There's the upper and the lower waters, yes. Okay, so how does that translate to the knowledge? Um, in other words, 
there's upper there's upper upper mighty. I'm assuming is spiritual knowledge. Yes. And the lower would be physical knowledge. Physical knowledge. Yes. Yep. Okay. It's, it's knowledge okay, of the so, physical so, universe. So at one point, what happens is there's no more firmament between the two minds. Correct. It will end, and that's what the Messianic era does. It connects both worlds, or both areas of reality. That's really what it does. Okay, so you the see. first question I have is, where is the upper, the upper, upper waters? I can only understand that being Torah. Are there waters on top of, uh, 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 there's, there's water, we have water on the ground, and, you know, we have ocean, real water. And is there water above us? Or well, is that the Torah? Is that no, only? The, the Torah is all the information that there is. The Torah is the blueprint, as the Midrash says, that God used to create all reality. You see? Except the, the idea is that we know the Torah now as a physical set of laws. But really the Torah is the blueprint, the architectural plans of the totality of reality. And that will be exposed in the Messianic era. And those so are the, the upper waters. The reality would be the upper world, the upper Mayim, and the lower Mayim together. Yes, they will merge. They will merge. Yes. Okay. And, and, and he calls the upper my upper waters Shamayim, right? Yes. Any reason why he's adding a shin to it? Whatever. That's that's a detail. Will, as Mephoshim says, Shamayim is really two words. Sham, Mayim. There is water. Right. That's why. That's why it's called Shamayim. Shum, beer, Mayim is water, yeah. But what I'm trying to say is that the water in heaven is a metaphor for the Ruchnius, the whole spirituality of reality. And that is the messianic light. And that will merge or connect with the lower knowledge, which is the knowledge of the entire physical universe. You know, science and nuclear and physics, chemistry biology, all of that will be connected. And, we, we, you know, we cannot even begin to imagine the, total, the unbelievable amount of information that that will yield. But the main thing it will yield is that everything is connected. What used to look separate is no longer separate. It's one massive tapestry of reality. You see... So, if there's an or Rishon, is there also a Choshech Rishon? Yes, well, that's a different uh, idea. <clears throat> yeah. The Choshech Rishon, if you want to use that word, is to substitute an alternative reality. The Choshech Rishon, as I will talk about on Hanukkah, is Greece. Greece had a, an understanding of reality which was an alternative to Judaism because they believed that there is no spiritual universe. It's all physical. 
And that could be looked at chushich rishayin. Chushich is not just an absence of light. Chushich is an alternative understanding of the uh, of the universe. You see, the whole discussion. Anything? Anything else? So, Rabbi. So, if if the if the um the beginning of us having an like a more consciousness of the Torah comes down before the Mashiach comes. At what what kind of depth is it uh, that you're speaking of? How is that like? How is it going to happen where people who really don't have any connection to Torah are going to be opened to understanding it, looking into it, learning it? You know, how is well, that? How to, is that going to come apart? Let me tell you something which is very interesting. You know, why is it so difficult to learn Torah? So we think, well, maybe the reason why it's so difficult to learn, right, is because, you know, all wisdom, you have to really labor to understand it. But the truth is, that's not why. The reason why it's so difficult to learn Torah is because there is a clipper surrounding it. There is a satanic force that blocks everybody's ability to learn. And the way to break that satanic force is called yigiyah. Yigiyah means effort. That's how you do it. And when all of a sudden a person applies a lot of effort, then the shell or the blockage, right, is shattered. And all of a sudden it flies into his mind. So when you think about it, the oration is a type of information that is automatically in your mind. It takes absolutely no effort, not only that, but you see the totality of the ideas, you see, and um, therefore, our ability to learn Torah is really inherent in us. What makes it difficult is that there is a blockage. Therefore, when the Jews will finally have done the Tikkun, right, right before Mashiach comes, then there will be no klipa. There will be no barrier to understand the Torah. And then it will fly into your mind supernaturally. You won't even believe it. It's like sometimes you think of a problem, and all of a sudden the information is there. The answer is there. It just flies into your mind. You don't even know how that happened. That's exactly what's going to happen is that the Torah is going to fly in everybody's mind without any idea. Why? Because the klipa, the, sat- the satanic forces that block it, have been destroyed. And that's the whole point uh, in terms of the Mashiach coming, is that the satanic forces must be destroyed, and then he comes. You see? But I believe it will begin even before, you see, so it, 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 because the Russian has to bring the Jewish people up a certain level. You see, you can't just allow them to meet this person that will introduce an entire kingdom of insight and holiness. We see that by Egypt. The Jews had to be prepared for Mount Torah. So the first thing was, we know, the Ten Marcus that they had tremendous amount of giluyim, which is revelations, while the makas, 
the uh, uh, not the plagues, but the the uh, blows were going on. Then they had Kriyas Yamsuf, and the visions that they saw by Yamsuf, we cannot even begin to imagine. And then finally they had the forty-nine days, whatever was left. So there were three stages in Egypt in order to get to what? In order to get to Matantara. Uh, Why? Because they would have died, and they did die. It's astounding that notwithstanding all the three stages of growth in the Torah, they still all died because God spoke to them directly. You see? And that's the concept of the Orishan, where God will speak directly to each Jew. And we, we don't even know what that means. I'm telling you, it's like, a, it's like a fetus in the uterus that has no concept of reality other than that uterus. That is how limited we are. And that is how much the world will change. It's beyond our belief how much the world will change. So therefore, my answer to you is that it will be supernatural, but the real reason for that is because there's no more blockage, no more klipa. You see? So when that klipa of the Torah is removed, the Torah will revert to basically the first tablets where we, were ha- we would have had that ease of understanding? Correct, yeah. If, if we would have had the first tablets, uh, then we would have had the Orishan, and it would be effortless to understand the Torah. You see, all of this tremendous amount of difficulty. In fact, the, the, there's an Ari that says that when a person has, he's learning and he has a question, where does that question come from? And the answer the Ari says is that's a klipa. Isn't that amazing? That when you have a question, that's the blockage. That is the manifestation of the blockage that the Satan can manufacture for you. But what happens if there was no Satanic force? Then there would be no questions. It would fly into your mind with unbelievable speed. In many ways, it's prophecy. It's Nevoah. And Nevoah is effortless. In fact, in Nevoah, in prophecy, you sit back, you're in a trance, and the information presents itself with incredible clarity, definity, the, the, and the definition and so on, you know, without any effort whatsoever. That's the way the information will present itself ultimately to all the Jews. So I have a question. So when, um, of what, when you said that uh, when Moshe threw the Lucha down the mountain and it turned into a thousand pieces and is disorganized and all over, disordered. Isn't that basically like the Jews now, that we're all over the plate, we're all over the world, we're all at different levels, we're all at different kinds, and it's basically we're not united as, as the Luhalt was? Would you yes. Continue? The essential mechanism, well, I should say the essential um, phenomenon that this Sutton creates is called disunity. That's what he wants. It's called period or separation. 
And that happens in many, many different spheres. It happens in learning, and it happens also in the achtus that Jews have with one another. That's why you find by Matan Torah, you know, Ki'ish Echov Beleve Echod, as it says, which I once mentioned, that it says, Vayich and Shom Yisrael Negedoho, and Israel encamped by the mountain. So the should have said, Vayachnu, and they encamped. Instead, he uses the singular verb. So Rashi points out that at Mount Sinai, our Matan Torah, the Jews were incredibly united. Ki'ish Echod, they were as one person, Belev Echod, with one heart, you see. And the purpose of the Satan, and he knows, the essential strategy of the Satan is to disunite the Jewish people. And that's what, what you're saying. There's a tremendous amount of disunity, fragmentation, you see, of the Jewish people. That's his, his essential strategy. In fact, it's not only with the Jewish people, right? The Torah itself is fragmented. Our relationship with the Torah is fragmented. Everything is fragmented. And an enormous amount of energy, time, and so on, is spent time to put every, trying to put everything together in a unified form. You see? The essential... Um, uh, uh, the essential state of creation is fragmented. Disunity, you see. And ultimately in the Messianic era, everything will be combined, united, and merged into a beautiful tapestry where everything is seen as truly united. So the Jews will unite once the klipa of the Torah is removed? Yes. Okay, so now my other question is, on the creation clock, where are we now? We are, I think, we are, I think, 12.45 p.m. And, and if I remember correctly. Like where do we, where, what time do we need to get to? Well, the interesting thing is that we passed. The goal is to get to 12.30. Actually, the goal is Chatzais, which is 12 o'clock, right? But the problem is when the sun is at noon, which is the meridian, right, you don't see the shadow because it's above head. But when the sun begins to go, right, it begins to head west, rises in the east and sets in the west, then you can begin to see a shadow form. So that's why it takes six and a half hours to notice that the sun has crossed the meridian. Uh, so 12.30 is also when you can begin to dab mincha gedoyla. You see. So therefore we are past that. It says in the Novi, v'hoyuli eis erev, and there will be evening, right? V'hoyuli eis erev, or. And it will be at evening time, there will be light. Uh, that refers, by the way, to Sheish Vachetzi. And that's called Beinu Arbayim. Beinu Arbayim starts at 12.30 p.m., you see. And it says that there will be light. So we are really overdue, if you think about it. We are really overdue for the Mashiach. 
And I believe what we're really seeing, Chatzos, by the way, was 1990. It was September 1989. That was 12 o'clock noon, Chatzos. And if you recall, September 1989, a month later, the Berlin Wall collapsed. And that began the overthrow or the beginning of the change of the, phys- of the nations of the world. And communism then also fell uh, another year or two after that. But with the overthrow of the Berlin Wall, September of 1990, that began the beginning of the end. And since then, it's been going with tremendous speed. I mean, it's incredible. Every day, we see things happening that, could have, that would have taken centuries thousands of years ago is to happen today. It's happening on a weekly basis, maybe even a daily basis. Because obviously what God is doing is he's rushing up things. He wants to end it all for many reasons. Chief among them, because the world is finished. That's why. They have now entered a certain period of darkness, which in many ways is irreversible. You know, and I refer that we are now back at the level of Noach and the corruption of the Mabel. You know, the whole concept I once mentioned, you know, the LGBTQ, you know, that corruption and uh, the, the, the pursuit of physicality, the minimization of spirituality. Uh, there's so many bad things going on now and so on. <clears throat> and uh, therefore, it's irreversible. So, um, you know, all of this is uh, coming to an end, you know. That's where we're up to, 12.45 p.m. So we're 15 minutes overdue. Is there a specific time that, like, something's going to happen? Like, is there a time on the clock, like, 1 o'clock, 2? Is there other times that are, like, definite something's going to happen, or we don't, or No. Well, we don't really know exactly, you know, what will happen at different, uh, you know, hours of the day and so on, you know. Um, there are remozim, you know, because Adam uh, was created at 12, the first man, and the Gemara Sanhedrin goes through the different things that happened as the hours proceeded until he sinned at around 5 p.m., so there are allusions to perhaps different things. But the critical thing, obviously, is to begin the process, the messianic process. And I see as the critical thing the rehabilitation of the Jewish people. That is, the, as far as I see, that is the critical idea. And that is indicated, that's the indication of the upward swing it's no longer going down. It is now reversed. And the muzzle of the Jews is now going up. You know. And at the same time, you'll see tremendous amount of, of darkness among the Goyim. Which you're really seeing now anyway. So we are really in the thick of it. That's really what's happening. So like I say, we are beyond. We are over. We are in. It's called overtime. Like I say, that's why you're seeing the tremendous rapidity of world events. 
there's no longer time to wait, you know, to take uh, decades to, for things to happen. Things are happening one, two, three. You see. Oh, Any Rabbi, other questions? Rabbi, I have a question. Yes. If um, right now people are so, like the suffering is incredible and some people don't even want to believe in God and some people even want to give up. But I'm thinking if the Malach taught us the whole Torah before we're born, is there a way that we can activate any of that, the power that you talked about last week and to help people to get through all this? It's really, really bleak. And what exactly, like, what really is in our mind right now? Is there any bit of spark or something in, in our mind from that, the Malach that taught us the Torah? <clears throat> well, the Malach teaching everybody Torah is really to lay out the path of that particular individual, you see, <clears throat> uh, which is very interesting to see. When the Shema comes down, it has to know what is expected of it. So when the Malach teaches it, the Torah, what it's really doing is telling it, this is your path. Of course, the problem is that the Neshama, when it emerges, forgets. But intuitively, there is a sense of direction. And that's really, in many ways, uh, what happens and so on, you know. Uh, I believe that the critical thing to have today is emunah. You need to believe that all of this has a purpose, that there is a God, that he means the best for the Jewish people, that he wants to redeem them, and he's not playing around with them, that he wants to redeem them, right, and bring them you know, to a tremendous place. And like the Chazal say, when you learn the, uh, the Mishnayot of Sota and the Gmon Sanhedrin, like I once said a long time ago, the problem is that in order for this to be satisfied, justice has to be satisfied. But the main thing, like I said, is emunah. You have to just hold on to faith and be tachon and believe in God. And believe in God and believe that He wants the best for us. And all of this will lead ultimately to a tremendous redemption. That's what you have to believe, even though, uh, actually I'm going to talk about this probably next week, Lavrom Havino. But the main idea is, like I said, those two concepts. Emunah, belief in God. And Bitachon, trust in God. That He wants to bring us ultimately to a tremendous place. It's just that we have to go through, you know, these conditions in order for that to happen. And I believe that if a person does have a moon and be talking, that God will act to him with a tremendous amount of uh, rahmanut, mercy, and hatzlacha. Uh, uh, Those are key. And uh, if a person has that, tremendous uh, then that he will succeed in somehow staying above you know the the tremendous storm that rages about 
about all of us, and that's what we're really in. We're in the middle of a hurricane, a hurricane of evil. You see, a hurricane of terrible incompetence and and uh, crime and uh, what do you call them pleasure and physicality and so on. Like I say, you know, just hang in there and just go through what you have to do, which is other mitzvot. Be careful of Lashon Hara, because that's the worst. And um, like I say, you know, in the end, it will all be justified, and you will be validated. Thank you. Yes. Any other questions? Um, okay. Can we go back to the creation clock? So, if it's 12.45 now, what time is candle lighting? Does it have to come before Shabbat? Yes. It has to come before Shabbat. Yes. But candle lighting is the beginning of the 7,000th year. So the Messianic year will be over by candlelighting. Right. So what, when, when is this process happening? I'm waiting for a long time. Well, it's got to it's gotta happen now. Between now, because the, the whole Messianic era is over by candlelighting. And that begins the seventh day, which is the equivalent of the 7,000th year, which is no longer the natural you know, events of mankind. We're looking at a whole different uh, level of universe, which I had mentioned previously, you see. Correct. So what are your thoughts on time frame? Like, now you see today how Facebook, Instagram, uh, WhatsApp, everything got zapped. I, I don't know. It was like a darkness today on the Internet. Well, I think in many ways what God wants to show the world is re- your reliance on mankind's ability is very poorly placed. What, what God wants to do is loosen, you know, the, the feelings that we have about the invincibility of mankind. That's what he wants to do. So when you see a major institution like Facebook fail and others, you realize that you can't rely on this. You know what I'm saying? Wow. And that's what we see. Look, God is destroying all the gods of mankind. He has destroyed the credibility of the American government by what Biden did. He's just doing that. I mean, he's just, you know, like I say, he's destroying all the idols of civilization. That there's nothing there, and you can't rely on anybody and therefore, you must turn to God. Right. That's basically what the message is. You see. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. So do you think okay. that this year really is the year of Yovel that we're going to be in Chavshi? I'm certainly hopeful, yeah. I'm certainly hopeful. Okay. 